All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior Journal Club webinar, Revision and Psychometric Validation of a Survey Tool to Measure Critical Nutrition Literacy in Young Adults. Uh, my name is Mark Lewis. I am the SNAB Membership Director. Uh, as the official peer-reviewed journal of the Society of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, JNAB serves to advance nutrition, education, and behavior-related research, practice, and policy. The Spring Journal Club series was organized with the assistance of the SNEB Research Division, uh, so a big thank you to them. Uh, before we begin, I want to review a few pieces of information with everyone. Uh, if you look at the GoToWebinar toolbar on the side of the screen, you will see a section called Handouts. There you will find the slides for today's presentation. Feel free to download the slides and take notes as you follow along. Uh, we will take questions at the end of today's presentation. Throughout the presentation, please type any questions you may have into the questions box, and they will be moderated out to our panelists. When the webinar ends today, you will be prompted to complete a short survey. Please take a moment to complete that, as your feedback is greatly appreciated for future SNEB webinars. The webinar is being recorded and will be available free of charge to SNEB members under the webinar section of the website. And finally, please watch for a follow-up email to be sent within the next few days that will include a link to the recording for this session, the slide handouts, and your CEU certificate for your attendance today. I will now hand things over to our moderator, Dr. Kristen DeFilippo, Teaching Assistant Professor at University of Illinois. Thank you, Mark. Today I get to introduce our presenters. We have Jade McNamara, who is an Assistant Professor of Human Nutrition in the School of Food and Agriculture at the University of Maine, Orono campus. Dr. McNamara's work focuses on developing and evaluating evidence-based programming to improve health-related quality of life in the community setting with a focus on young adults. A particular focus is in validating survey tools that can be used to assess and measure behavior change. Zach Kunicki is a junior faculty at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior. His research focuses on psychometric and latent variable modeling with a focus on depression and other factors influencing the trajectory of cognitive decline in persons living with dementia. As a member of the Quantitative Science Program, he also provides methodological consulting services on grants and manuscripts and leads seminars on analyzing data using R. I want to thank both of them for joining us today and sharing their work with us. At this point, I can hand it over to our presenters. Great, thank you, Kristen, for introducing us um, for this SNME Spring Journal Club entitled Revision and Psychometric Validation of a Survey Tool to Measure Critical Nutrition Literacy in Young Adults. So I'm Jade McNamara from University of Maine and then that Kaniki is also with me from Brown University, and we're both really excited to, to share this work with you all. Okay. The outline of today's talk, briefly go over the competencies covered in this uh, presentation, do an overview of nutrition literacy, followed by gaps in the knowledge around uh, critical nutrition literacy, have an overview of methods, I'm gonna then pass it over to Zach to talk about key quantitative methods and findings. Go over a little bit of what we, how we've used this tool so far and what is in the works for the future. And then uh, methodological strengths and limitations, and we'll have time for questions after that. 
For the nutrition educator competencies, the first one being uh, describe the basic types of approaches, approaches used by researchers to study diet health relationships and describe their advantages and limitations. We also have assess the nutritional and behavioral needs of the population to establish behavior change goals, and then analyze, evaluate, and interpret nutrition education research and apply it to practice. To begin, I'm going to talk about uh, nutrition literacy and give an overview of nutrition literacy for those who might be less familiar with the topic. And really the work of nutrition literacy has been built upon Nutbeam's conceptualized model of health literacy and then adapted to nutrition literacy. There's a great article by Vlardo in the Journal of Nutrition Education and Behavior that was published in 2015 that is titled Nuances of, of Nutrition Literacy, Food Literacy, and Health Literacy. I believe that's, that's the title. But really what she does is breaks down nutrition literacy and outlines how the different domains of health literacy can be adapted um, through a nutrition literacy lens. And really the three domains of nutrition literacy include functional, which is basic nutrition knowledge. Then we have interactive, which is applying nutrition knowledge and changing circumstances. And lastly, critical nutrition literacy, which is critically analyzing information and advocating for healthful environments. And I think a good way to describe or think about nutrition literacy sometimes is through an example. So for instance, say that uh, someone goes to the doctor and they find out that they have high blood pressure. And so the doctor tells them to follow a low sodium diet. In terms of nutrition literacy, that person would have to have the functional or basic nutrition knowledge to understand what products have sodium in it and to be able to read a nutrition facts label to understand how much sodium is in that product. Interactive nutrition literacy comes into play when somebody is taking that basic knowledge of understanding what food products have sodium or um, being able to look at a nutrition facts label and see how much sodium is in a certain product and then apply that information, for example, at the grocery store. If they were trying to find a cracker that has lower sodium than, than something else, or if they were making their favorite recipe at home and then adjusting that recipe to make it have less sodium in it. That would be an interactive nutrition literacy where they're applying that basic knowledge in changing circumstances. Critical nutrition literacy, however, goes beyond that and, it, and it's a person's, maybe that person's ability to understand why a low sodium recommendation was even given for high blood pressure. Um, they were able to maybe look at the research, see why it would be beneficial for them to follow a low sodium diet. Um, and then the other piece of that is advocating for healthful environments. So maybe that same person is looking at their food environment and seeing, wow, a lot of the food products that are available to me and affordable to me actually tend to have a lot of sodium in it. Let's change this food environment to make it more healthful for the rest of the community that I'm living in. So those are really the three domains and they can work independently and, and together in a sense to 
in terms of you know, healthful behaviors. So really, we're just focusing on that critical nutrition literacy domain in this work. And with the critical nutrition literacy, so this research was focused on revising a tool that already existed. The original critical nutrition literacy tool was developed by Gunserson and all in 2014. And this scale was, or this tool was developed in Norway with Norwegian nursing students. And it has, what they developed were two scales. So they have the critical appraisal scale, which consisted of 11 items focused on critical appraisal of media and evidence-based sources of information. And then they also had the engagement scale or really looking for advocating for healthful environments, which had eight items. For the purposes of our research, we were really interested in, in really where the motivation or the spark came from to look at critical nutrition literacy in young adults was to get a better understanding of how young adults were using evidence-based information to make health decisions, specifically around nutrition. But we were really curious to see, okay, with all this noise out there in the media and all the access we have to information, are young adults really looking for evidence-based sources? And so that's what brought us to this critical appraisal scale and the motivation and the um, and the desire to, to validate it in a US population. Um, and so that critical appraisal scale that had a, originally 11 items and they all fell under this one factor, which was titled appraisal skills. And when we were looking at this original tool, we were looking at the items and you know they have, they relate to both to media sources of information, newspapers and magazines specifically, they also, it also asks about how um, they're influenced by media, but then also looking at evidence-based source sources of information. Some of the items we were questioning if they really fell under all just one factor. So for example, this item in blue, I believe my body tells me what it needs in terms of nutrients, regardless of researchers' opinions about this, may be getting at a different construct than um, the other item in blue, which is I find it hard to distinguish scientific nutritional information from non-scientific nutrition information, right? One of those items is kind of getting at distrust in research versus another item is asking more about does someone have the ability to look or to um, decipher between scientific and non-scientific information? So we just had some questions about, um, about the items and how well they would stick together under this one factor um, as we went forward with um, validating the tool. So our gap in knowledge was really asking, is the critical nutrition literacy tool valid in assessing critical nutrition literacy in young adults outside of Norway, looking at our looking at a US population. And we're again focusing specifically on the critical appraisal scale. Okay, I'm going to do a brief overview of methods and then pass it over to Zach. So um, how we went about revising this tool well, the first, the purpose was really to validate the revised critical nutrition literacy tool claim scale. 
psychometrically using two psychometric components, factor analysis and internal consistency measures. And how we went about this was recruiting students from three land-grant universities. Students were from the University of Rhode Island, West Virginia University, and Rutgers University. And to participate in the survey, they just had to be between the ages of 18 to 24 years old. For the statistical analyses, we did exploratory factor analysis, confirmatory factor analysis, and then item response theory. And Zach, I think you can take it over from here. Oh no, it's making me open my system preferences. <laughs> No worries. This is always part of the process. I'm sorry. One second. I'll get it. <laughs> I'll give you control. Okay. Oh no. Now it's asking you to restart. I'm just going to click for you, Zach. I got you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I. Uh... Moving into the different types of statistical analyses we use, um, the first approach was exploratory factor analysis. And when we did uh, the EFA, as I'll refer to it, we used half of the combined sample. And we wanted to do this because we wanted to first uh, try to identify what factors exist in it, existed in the data in one part of the data set and then validate that in the second, which is a pretty common technique. When we're doing EFA, we're really trying to look at what are the number of underlying latent factors under the group of items. So we can see in the figure on the right, we have the circle with the Greek letter eta inside of it. That is the latent factor of eta. And then the various items, uh, in this case, I, it's a one through n, are going to underlie that particular factor. EFA itself uh, has a variety of ways we can determine uh, just how many factors we're looking at. Uh, there are a few techniques that we can use a priori to decide the number of factors, including um, Belliser's minimum average partial test, uh, Horn's parallel analysis, and I think there's another one called the very simple structure. Um, I tend to use Valser's map test, which is what we use in this paper, uh, but I believe we also checked Horn's analysis and it was the same thing. Now, on top of that, there are more approaches. Um, there's also uh, letting the EFA just determine how many number of factors it is by the model itself, and taking whichever ones have what, an eigenvalue greater than one, or look at a discrete plot, which are other approaches that are definitely used. Uh, but my training was to try to figure out a priori, and the math test suggested two. So we, end, we were trying to validate a two-factor structure. So there are two latent variables that we're trying to measure. One of the first steps is to look at the loadings between the item and the factor. And those are designated by the Greek letter lambda. The loadings we can, we can view as a correlation between the item itself and the underlying factor. And generally speaking, we want strong loadings, uh, greater than 0.4. There are, of course, multiple different guidelines of what constitutes a strong loading. I've seen um, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, all the way up to 0.8 as cutoffs. But uh, 0.4 seems a good happy medium where 
you're not going to lose any information by dropping items that maybe aren't as relevant, but you're not going to be so strict that you only have really, really strong items. Uh, the loadings themselves, they can be positive or negative, just like a correlation, so it doesn't really matter the direction of the relationship, just the strength. And I think then we can move to the next slide. So confirmatory factor analysis gets us into the realm of structural equation modeling. And here I wrote it as a stronger version of EFA because the two models are essentially the same thing. Um, in EFA, we're sort of letting the model itself determine how many factors are coming out and it's a much uh, more lax version. In the confirmatory factor analysis, or CFA, we as the researcher know what the model is on. And we're essentially taking the model and we're smushing it on the top of the data and seeing how well does the model fit. Otherwise, everything's essentially the same thing. We still have the latent factors, we still have the items underneath, we still have loadings. And at this point, we're sort of just confirming that these data fit well, or this model fits well to the data. This again is done in the second um, reserved half of the sample so that we can uh, validate the model fit in a, what ideally would be a completely different sample, but in our case, the second half of the random sample is uh, serving that purpose. To determine if the confirmatory fact analysis is showing good fit to the data, we're going to check a couple of fit indices. Uh, these include the chi-square tests, which we check and then promptly ignore. Um, the chi-square test is generally so sensitive that a significant result, which is an indication that the model is not showing good flow, is kind of unreliable. That's why we move to these other three indices called the root mean square error of approximation, or RMSCA, or the RAMSI, although I stopped calling it that after Game of Thrones came out, uh, the standardized root mean square residual, or SRMR, and the confirmatory fit index, or CFI. Generally, with the RMSCA and SRMR, values closer to zero indicate better fit, and with the CFI, values closer to one indicate better fit. So we'll be exploring what those were in just a few minutes. Uh, next slide, please, Jay. Next, we transfer to item response theory. Um, so item response theory is another latent variable model approach that is very similar to confirmatory factors. In fact, some people would argue that these two models are exactly the same thing. Uh, that's the source for a long debate that's probably outside the scope of this talk, but we could talk more about your questions if any of this comment. With item response theory, we're looking at a given latent trait theta, and we're trying to figure out how well do the items on the test measure. In this study, we're defining theta as nutrition literacy, but theta can be pretty much any construct we're trying to measure. Now, going into an item response theory model, we're assuming that theta is normally distributed. So most of us, or most people are going to be average within that one standard deviation mean of zero, and a few people are going to be really low or really high. And we can sort of determine where each of us are based on the theta value uh, using the results from item response theory analysis. Uh, next slide, please. When we're interpreting item response theory results, we're less focused on interpreting um, 
the number of latent variables, we still want to either determine that from an EFA or assume there's only one latent variable. And instead, we want to interpret what are called the slope and difficulty parameters. Difficulty is the point where the probability of answering yes or no for a binary item is about 50% on the theta. In the case of our measure, where we had multiple response options, it would be the 50% point of answering a 1 versus a 2, a 2 versus a 3, a 3 versus a 4, and a 4 versus a 5. Difficulty uh, parameters are also called threshold or B parameters, which is, of course, a uh, very confusing term, almost as confusing as type 1 versus type 2 error, but there you go. And really what we can do with the difficulty parameter is see how well is an item going to distinguish between two people of different abilities. So if we look at the figure on the right, um, item one is showing this logic curve where it looks like right around 1.7 is where we can see this item. Is. And we're seeing that because that's where the logic curve goes from a probability of zero to around a probability of 0.5 before left one off. So people who have lower values of critical nutritional literacy would probably be to the left of 1.7 or answer this no, and people who had higher values of nutritional literacy would answer yes or be on the right of this curve. And that's essentially what, this, what the item is doing, is distinguishing between who's going to answer yes or no on this item. Uh, next slide, please and thank you. Okay, discrimination is how well does the item do a job distinguishing between people. Uh, discrimination is also called the slope parameter or the A parameter. And generally speaking, um, higher discrimination values are better. Now, in this uh, item two on the right, we see that this is kind of a, it's like a 45 degree angle. So there's not a lot of ability to discriminate between people. There's going to be some people who answer with a 0.5 or the, I'm sorry, uh, the threshold or difficulty looks like it's right around zero is where the, the 0.5 uh, mark is. And so there's going to be some people who have stronger abilities theta that are still going to answer this question wrong because this item has a low discrimination. We can't really do a good job separating two people apart. This would probably be an item we'd consider dropping from the measure as part of the validation process if we saw something like this. Because generally, a good item is going to have a high discrimination value, and a good test is going to have high discrimination on all items, but the items are going to have a variety of difficulties, so we can have a good range of who's answering some questions that are easier, and who's answering some questions that are harder. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, lastly, for internal consistency, uh, I'm a big proponent of using coefficient omega. It's also called McDonald's omega. Uh, it's, a, it's a slightly better version of convex alpha, which is the commonly used version. Um, and really, the only reason we prefer omega is it makes less assumptions. Otherwise, we interpret it the same way, where 0.7 is considered good enough to be. 
And I think with that, we're ready to look at some of our results. Great, so we are gonna look at some key findings and then I'm gonna pass it back to Zach to talk about more of the quantitative findings. Um, for our demographic data, our sample had about 1,700 students. The mean age was about 20 years old, plus or minus 1.7 years. Our sample was 70% female, 81% white, and 67% lived off campus. Just to give you a little overview of what our sample was. Um, and as I said earlier, our exploratory factor analysis suggested that there were two factors. Uh, and when we fit that model the data using the confirmatory factor analysis, we found the chi-square test was significant. Um, best fit would be a non-significant chi-square test. Uh, so we did not meet this criteria, but we, as I said earlier, this is one of the fit tests that we can generally ignore um, because of how sensitive it is. Looking at the CFI, our result was a 0.9, and this meets uh, the less restrictive threshold. Generally, a 0.9 is acceptable fit, and 0.95 is good fit. So, or I'm sorry, 0.95 is great fit. So we can say that, yes, uh, we, we showed good fit based on the CFI index. The RMSCA, we generally want to see it below 0.10. So we were close, uh, but we didn't quite meet that threshold. And with the SRMR, we want to be below 0.08, and we were. So overall, uh, two out of the four isn't so bad here, and we can say that this model showed good fit to the data. Um, when looking at reliability, our omega value was 0.79 for the first factor and 0.66 for the second factor. Uh, so we could say we have good reliability for factor one, but uh, for factor two, I would refer to this as questionable. And now here are the IRT parameters for all of the different items. Uh, so looking at item one, difficulty threshold one is a negative 1.7. So separating people who responded with a, a one versus a two in this case would be around that uh, standard normal curve, negative 1.7. And that's, that seems an appropriate place for it to be. That's a, a little bit to the left of average or a little bit below average. And we would want our ID to be around because it's to separating those two people who are saying, uh, I think in this case it was rarely or never is what it was separating. As we move to the right, we see a difficulty threshold gets to a 0.10 or 0.01 or right around average, 1.5 and 3.25 which is pretty far off on that normal curve. But this is a pattern that we kind of like to see where we have a good spread of thresholds across the different response options. Our slope value for is 1.2 and that's pretty good. Uh, believe it or not, there isn't really any cutoff guideline out there on what a good slope is. The closest I found is um, there's a SAS manual out there that says 0.7 is but I haven't seen what does anything else. But overall, um, looking through the rest of these items, we can see that we have achieved exactly what we want to see. A strong slope or discrimination parameters for each item, 
and a good spread of difficulty thresholds across the various response options. Great, thank you for going over those, Zach. Um, so what that left us with were two fa a two-factor scale. Uh, factor one titled critical appraisal of media sources and factor two titled critical appraisal of evidence-based nutrition sources. And so what we found, which was that differed from the original scale, was that there was a separation between looking at you know, media sources of information versus specifically focusing on, on looking for evidence-based sources from a more of a scientific um, resource. For example, under you know, factor one, that first item, I have confidence in the various diets that I read about in newspapers and magazines, et cetera, versus the first item in factor two, I am critical of uh, the dietary information that I receive from various sources in society, or I'm concerned that the dietary information that I read may not be based on science. Um, so we have started using this revised tool in, in work, and we have a, a paper out that is uh, looks at establishing criterion validity for the revised critical nutrition literacy tool in US college students. And what this paper shows is that this critical nutrition literacy score has um, significantly increased after college students took an introduction to nutrition course. So looking, um, not only was that, you know, nutrition courses successful in in addressing critical nutrition literacy, but also that this tool was sensitive enough to show a change um, from pre, um, the pre-semester pre, um, pre versus at the end of the semester. And uh, part two of that paper also looked at the relationship between the critical nutrition literacy and uh, dietary intake. So what we found was that there was a significant difference in students who were in the upper um, portion of having higher critical nutrition literacy and that they ate, they reported eating more fruits and vegetables and reported having uh, less teaspoons of added sugar per day. What we're working on now with the tool is ex expanding it. So the works for our critical nutrition literacy is really expanding it to include other sources of media. So the, specifically the items state newspapers and magazines. And when we're thinking about our college students, they're typically not really looking to magazines or newspapers anymore, but more internet sources of information, which they may be reading, you know, newspaper online. But, um, and also really big influence right now is social media, right? So expanding the critical nutrition literacy tool to include other places where young adults might be getting their health information from. The other piece is working uh, on developing the nut critical nutrition literacy advocacy scale. That's such a, a big part of critical nutrition literacy that wasn't covered in this paper. So we've looked to um, really further develop using um, Gunsterson's and all 
advocacy scale as a starting point, but then we've done focus groups with college students and work to uh, validate an advocacy scale that now has 10 items. And two examples are, um, I would advocate for a farmer's market on my college campus. And another one, I would participate in a campaign to bring healthier food um, to campus. So that's how we've, what's in the works for critical nutrition literacy and uh, expanding about the work that we've already done um, with this revision. I believe I'm gonna pass it back to Zach to talk about some strengths and limitations, um, specifically focused on the methods. Thank you again, Jade. Uh, so for strengths, um, we definitely had a huge sample, which is always nice to be working with. And we approached uh, the measurement development from uh, both sides of the aisle, so to speak, where confirmatory factor analysis could be as part of classical test theory, which is uh, one approach, uh, with item response theory being another related approach. Uh, overall, we found strong loadings of each of the items on the factors uh, in the EFA-CFA models. And with the IoT analysis, we found a good spread of difficulty parameters and strong discrimination parameters. Uh, for a couple of limitations, uh, we did have that low reliability for factor two. It's at a 0.66, and we'd really like to see that about 0.7. Um, with the CFA model, we did not meet all of the model fit cutoffs. We'd really like to see that at RMSCA below 0.10. And because the sample is predominantly white and female, we are limited in the generalizability of these results to other populations. Okay, and that brings us really to the end of our presentation. I'd like to um, acknowledge the other authors on this paper, Melissa Olfer at, the West, at West Virginia University, uh, Carol Birdbrenner at Rutgers University, and Jeffrey Green at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, this work was supported through Ag Experiment Stations, and uh, I would really like to take the time to thank all our participants, all a thousand plus of them who took this survey, and for all the previous work done on critical nutrition literacy and nutrition literacy in general to help um, inform and shape this work. So thank you all. And we're happy to take any questions if anybody has any. Thank you so much. As people have questions, um, they are welcome to type those at any time into the chat box and I can moderate those out to our presenters. Uh, so the first question I have is if someone was wanting to engage in, in factor analysis for the first time, what advice would you give them to help their project run more smoothly? That is an excellent question. Um, I would say that it really helps to have as large of a sample as you can. Um, I have seen factor analysis papers run sample sizes as low as 50, uh, but that's really not ideal. Um, generally speaking, uh, samples of around 200 to 600 are really preferred for these types of models. Um, that being said, uh, it's, it's pretty hard to get a sample of 200 to 600, so sometimes you have to make do with what you have. Um, I would also definitely look into the differences between determining the number of factors a priori um, versus letting the EFA model itself determine the number of factors. And that goes into the uh, the Velicer's map test and Horn's parallel analysis for a priori approaches 
and the scree plot or eigenvalue is greater than one rule for the uh, EFA approach. And then you had mentioned that um, you're working on revisions. Are there any steps you will take in revisions to increase the um, the validity of factor two? I know you had talked about that being a limitation. Yes, so with the revisions, we've gone kind of back to the drawing board of, of working on informing the tool using so we've done focus groups with college students to get their viewpoints on critical nutrition literacy and really where they're getting you know, scientific information because that's where factor two uh, focused on. Um, so that has been improved as we further developed that tool, which will hopefully be impressed very soon in JNEB. <laughs> 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 yeah, I understand. Um, well, I think that is all the questions we have for today. I want to thank you both for being here. Um, it's been wonderful to learn about your work. And at this point, I can pass it back to Mark. All right. Thank you very much, Kristen. Thank you again to our speakers. We really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us today. Um, just a few reminders before I close out today's session. Uh, please complete the survey you will receive when we close out today's session. Your feedback is greatly appreciated and helps inform future webinars. Um, be on the lookout for an email with today's reporting, the handout, and your CEU certificate. And if you enjoyed today's webinar, please be sure to check up for our upcoming webinars on that section of the website. So that concludes today's session. Thank you all for joining us and hope everyone has a great day. Thank you. Thank you.